Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The most important thing that we forget to tell folks when they're starting out in security is most of our tooling is about being more effective and efficient. It's not about doing something you can't do yourself. Security isn't about a magic box. I wish it was. It'd be a lot easier if we could just buy a magic box, done, off we go to the beach. But what we have is a really human problem. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features all things security with Laura Belmain, CEO and founder at SafeStack. In this conversation, Laura shares valuable strategies for building your security team and tool stack. We cover why security is a human problem based on human motivations, prioritization conversations for assessing risks, considerations for early stage security teams, how behavior change and decision-making impact security, and different considerations for companies that are in the messy middle phase of building out their security program, recommendations for incorporating security monitoring tools, how to measure those tools ROI, and more. Let me introduce you to Laura. With over 20 years of experience in software development and information security, Laura Belmain specializes in bringing security into organizations of every shape and size. She's the co-founder and CEO of SafeStack, an online education platform offering high-quality and people-focused secure development training for fast-moving companies with a focus on building security skills, practices, and culture across the entire engineering team. She's also the co-author of Agile Application Security and Security for Everyone. Enjoy this conversation with Laura Bell Maine. First off, just wanted to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. How are you doing? How are things? What's going on in your world? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a beautiful autumn day here in New Zealand. I'm lying, it's raining. But um, I believe that it could, it has the potential to be a beautiful day if I wish it long enough. And I'm in the middle of lots of exciting things. So we've got a lot of new cool technology being built all around us right now. And so me and the team, we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how on earth this crazy future that we're building is going to be secure. So a lot of experimentation and research right now. A big question, I'm sure, that begets a lot of big answers or a lot of rabbit holes to dive down into. So many rabbit holes. Wonderful. Well, just to set some context for our conversation, the world in which we want to live in today a little bit is some of the strategies to help folks begin building their security team or to begin assessing their security tool stack. We've had a lot of folks from our community come and share, I don't have a security team. We know this is mission critical. What do I do? So for somebody listening in, what should somebody do about security if they don't have a security team? Look, this is probably the most important question we could be asking right now. So now in a bit of fortuitous nature, it, it's there's a lot of focus at the moment, well, this week, in fact, in the US on small businesses. And we use that phrase like it's some kind of dirty word. But actually, many of our organizations, even the ones building the best technology in the world, are what we'd call small organizations. And small in the US is not small. It's up to 500 people. And so there's a heck of a lot of organizations have nothing. They have no security person. They have no tooling. And that is that is where we are. And that's most common pattern. So the first thing we can do is take a breath. 
it's a very shared space. You know, you're not on your own. And the second thing is you don't need to buy tools. Not yet. The, the most important thing that we forget to tell folks when they're starting out in security is most of our tooling is about being more effective and efficient. It's not about doing something you can't do yourself. Security isn't about a magic box. I wish it was. It'd be a lot easier if we could just buy a magic box, done, off we go to the beach. But what we have is a really human problem. Indulge me just a second with an analogy. Imagine you were cave people, right? And your company is in cave one and another company is in cave two. And you have the shiny rocks or whatever it is that has value in cave person times. Now, this is a security problem. One group has something that has value to another group that they don't have, and they have sufficient motivation to do something about it. And that is the root of every single problem we see in security. All we've done is changed the shiny pebbles or whatever it was worth money or currency or credence in that kind of time through to digital things now. So currency or information or online reputation, whatever it is that has value. Now, back in the old days, we would have just hit each other with sticks. That was attacking. And so our defense mechanisms were have bigger sticks or live in a better cave. And now we're looking at, well, how do we protect against these new technologies and new technologies being electronic attack, ransomware, all sorts of things. But underneath it all, all of the tech aside, it's the same human challenge. And that means if you know that it's that same human challenge, you can approach it in that way. It doesn't have to be sophisticated because security rarely is. It just has to be real to the context you're in. There's a lot in there that I want to deconstruct a little bit. And I think this concept of security being a human problem. When you say security is a, is a human problem in the context of engineering organizations or software heavy or like companies, what do you mean by that? And tell us more about it. Until we go to like the Skynet situation where AI is clearly going to take over the world and, you know, we'll not have jobs. We'll park that till next week. Apparently that's on the radar. Stepping back from that, the only reason attack happens right now is because somebody has a motivation. And I'm very clearly saying somebody, even if it is an automated script, somebody wrote that script. Even if it is an organized group, there were people at the foundations of that who chose to put that together. And so they have a motivation. That motivation could be money. Um, and that could just be stealing cold hard cash if you happen to have a lot of that lying around. Or it could be stealing things to sell for money. It can be all those fun things right the way through to extortion. And that gets a bit dark and scary at that point. Or it could be political. You know, you want to prove that somebody's values don't align with yours. Now, the thing with political attack, for those who are confused and think that nation states are out to get you, a political attack could be as simple as, I really hate everyone who wears plaid shirts. And if you wear a plaid shirt, I am fundamentally opposed to your existence. Doesn't have to make sense. All that has to happen is you have to believe something strongly enough that you would take action to try and get rid of that perceived problem. And then there's good old-fashioned revenge. I don't like you. You've done me harm. I'm going to show you why this is a problem. And then the social media world has given us more ego than we've ever needed. So I want to prove that I'm really clever and sophisticated by attacking Tesla or whoever I want to go after. So without all of those motivations, the tech is irrelevant. The tech has enabled us to do things we could do manually. You can do most security attacks by hand. That's what high-end security researchers do. They write scripts, they reverse engineer, they explore. They're the people pressing all the buttons and seeing what happens. The tooling and the automation that's come, in fact, very DevOpsy automation in some cases in things like ransomware, have just been about doing it at scale. People have realized that they can do their motivation a lot quicker, and so they invest in tooling. And so I truly believe that you can't treat security as just a tech problem because if you got rid of the tech, you stopped this type of attack here, there's still a person or a group somewhere underneath it all that still wants to meet their objective. And like water, humans are very good at adapting our methods to meet our motives. 
Can you help us understand, like, what does it look like for security as a, as a human problem? What, is, what does this look like? There's lots of defenses you can do. We'll get to it. Don't worry. Um, and anyone who wants to talk to me afterwards, I, I'm that kind of person. I like talking about this stuff. But before you choose what you spend your limited dollars on or your people or your hours, whatever currency you have available, you have to look at the why and the people. So for example, if you happen to run a dating site for pets, let's say that dogs everywhere needed to find their perfect little furry friend. Fantastic. Great. Now, you could definitely walk into any show floor in the world that's security related and they will sell you every device known to man to save you from cyber threats. But what they won't do is help you understand why on earth would somebody attack a doggy dating site? And when you stop unpicking that, you go, all right, what are my motivations? Well, um, maybe I broke up with my ex and the dog is seeing other people and I want to know where, where this is going. So I need some information. I need to track somebody or a dog. I've had people when faced with the same hypothetical situation say, well, I'm a chef and I like eating dogs. I'm like, oh, goodness, that's not me. But it makes you realize how creative people can be with motivation. So you have to really look at what have you built and what could somebody gain from that? So how could they make financial gain? How could they further their political ends? What could they have against you and your organization that would make them choose to act? And from there, you can prioritize those down because not all of those situations are likely. We don't live in Hollywood movies, thankfully. And so we can go, okay, these 10 things could happen. These three things are likely to happen. And then you can start focusing your effort on, okay, if I was going to address those three things, what are the controls I could put in place that would make that more difficult to do? So preventative controls, easier to spot so detective controls, and faster to respond to if the bad thing happened, which we call a responsive or corrective control. The, the prioritization framework, I think, is really, is really powerful. And just even asking the question of what have you built and what could somebody gain and walking through just some of, like what you described, the different motivations that are possible is really, really helpful. Are there certain questions like going through that assessment of, you know, assessing motivations that you found to be clarifying or illuminating to help you get to the root, those root motivations that are driving people? There are lots of different frameworks. The, this process that I'm describing here is known as threat modeling, and it's been around a long time. There's a lot of really great open source um, and public resources for you to get started. So Microsoft, for example, uh, open sourced all of its threat modeling information about eight to 10 years ago. Um, so they've got one called Stride that can help prompt you on those questions. And that prompts you in thinking about impersonation and spoofing and what can you tamper with in the architecture but i always like to bring it back to more of a more of a collaborative and less technical view of it now imagine you got in the room together or in a virtual room given the world we live in you know someone from product somebody from engineering somebody who is in customer success and you also got somebody from hollywood now the hollywood person their job in the whole world is to deny that physics and the law exist they are a chaos entity. And their job is to sit there and go, yeah, but what if? Yeah, but what if? And as engineers, we, we, we stop doing that when we're kids. We kind of grow out of it. We're encouraged out of it. And so for me, it's less about having a key framework that's going to work. You'll work towards those. You'll mature your practice and you'll get to them. But if you're just starting out, start with, yeah, but what if? And be that chaos person. You're going to discount 90% of it and that's okay because you're going to spend the first hour making it okay for everyone to say, oh, hey, yeah, I had kind of thought we could do this evil thing using our app, but I didn't want to tell anyone. And that's what you need. You need people to go, oh, I can talk about this. This is safe. This is okay. Because that's how we start defending. 
to be the Hollywood chaos agent in that conversation, uh, I feel like that'd be a fun role to play in terms of being able to energize the creativity there. Oh, absolutely. It's super fun. I, I absolutely love doing it. And I will give a challenge to your audience. There's going to be lots of folks who build tech and you're in a space where you're like, oh, well, you know, security, you know, it's not really a thing because who hacks me? Um, I've done these exercises for, with people who do everything from uh, new wave agritech, where, you know, it's measuring the health of grapes through to a fashion manufacturer through to a company that does sensors that manages or measures the twitch and the finger speed of esports gamers. So I promise you there's something you can do there. Um, you've just got to be that chaos that it needs to start the conversation. So in talking kind of at the, the beginning here is like this person listening in doesn't have a security team. We're talking about first assessing the motivation, chaos engineering, sort of the the different types of threats that could occur, the, the threat modeling practice and prioritizing those. So once that happens, then what would be sort of the natural next step for per, that person who either has no security team or maybe is in the early stages of building out a more sophisticated security organization? I'm going to be really unpopular, but this is the part where two things matter. Firstly, having an incident response plan is probably the best investment you can make at the start of doing your security maturity. You can't guarantee you will fix all of the issues with security. You can never see all of the attacks coming. It's not possible. But you can be prepared for when bad things happen. Now, incident response used to historically sit outside of the software team. It would sit with operations or with the CIO somewhere, somewhere very far away. But in reality, in companies like ours, where we're, our main focus is building amazing software, if something goes wrong, it's only two phone calls. We're going to be somewhere in that incident response room helping out. So having a plan, where are my logs? How would I know where to look for things? How long do we keep things for? And there's some really well-versed template stuff out there for incident response from more the software um, resilience side of the house, so the SRE world. PagerDuty opened up all of their templates for incident response a number of years ago. That's a great starting point. So have a plan. That's not being defeatist. You're not going, oh my goodness, everything's going to end and I should just probably curl up in a ball. You're saying, yeah, all right, bad things are going to happen and I'm going to make sure we respond quickly and we get back on with business because that's what we want to do. Once we've got our incident response plan in place, then we move on to the really boring basics. I'm like not selling security here as a sexy subject, sorry. But you know those <laughs> things that everyone talks about and everyone always gets wrong, like having decent passwords and two-factor authentication on your key accounts, making sure that that intern you hired three years ago isn't still in your systems. You know, the, the <laughs> stuff that we like, oh God, yeah, but this is boring. Yeah, but it's 83% of the attacks we see are attacking really boring common vulnerabilities. So if you can get your boring basics out of the way, automate them if you have to, they're going to get rid of this really low hanging fruit because compromise happens, but it's much better to have your attackers sweat and work for it than them for walk in the front door because you left the keys to your CICD pipeline laying out in the street. We get stuck in with those. Now, wherever you are in the world, US, UK, New Zealand, Australia, the governments will actually provide very accessible lists of what those boring basics can be. Um, it normally centers around patching things. Who knew? Having good quality passwords. Surprise putting two-factor on everything, not sharing accounts widely across your organization, all the stuff we know. So use those checklists and get started. There's also a really great, and I'll share the links afterwards, don't worry, open source checklist for high growth CTOs. So depending on your stage, there is a checklist of all of the security steps that are considered normal to have already in place for the agent stage of your organization, which can be a really great place to start if you're a little overwhelmed. Uh, a checklist would be very helpful, I think, for for overcoming overwhelm. So I appreciate that recommendation. 
So the other thing that I'm imagining here, if going back to the earlier thing you shared, it's it's not about the tools, it's about the human side of things. What I'm kind of making an assumption around is that there's also some sort of behavior element here, that security is more about behavior than it is about the specific tool. And I know that's a perspective that that you've spent a lot of time shaping. And so I was wondering if you could share us a little more about security as it relates to behavior change. And what are your thoughts around that? Security is a strange space. We've spent 15 years telling everybody that the world is ending and the only person can save you is a CISO. And we pulled it so (laughs) far out as a development team that it literally sits in a different part of the building, reports to a different cost center. There were reasons that happened, but it created a bit of a monster. It created bad relationships between an area that should be included in software quality, in my view. So, you know, if I'm building software of any kind, whatever language, I care about performance. I care about scaling and usability and accessibility. And I care about all of these things in every single pull request that I generate. What we have done, however, is take part of quality, that security part, that defensibility, and stick it somewhere else and say it's somebody else's problem. So half of what I do in the world, I guess, half is run a a little company and and half is to try and change the, the way we do this so that as an engineer, that we don't see security as a separate thing, that we see it as something that every role in our software team can contribute to. So I'm not just saying when you write code, Think from idea, when you're doing your grooming, when you're doing your design, when you're laying out your architecture, even when you're maintaining systems that aren't in active development anymore, there's an element that every single role in that team can do to be the eyes of security, to you know look for things that could be going wrong, to respond and make good choices to limit the risk and to communicate upwards and outwards when there are challenges that could put data or people or systems at risk. Now, we haven't been good at that uh, as a community, as a, as a space. If you look at the OWASP top 10, which is our common learning tool of choice, the top commonly found vulnerabilities in web applications, it's been around about 15 years. And if you look Back at that list over that period of time, very little of it has changed. Now, in the software world, if I told you that 15 years ago we realized we had a problem and that problem's still a problem, none of us would be getting pay raises this year. Um, so somehow we failed in this idea of taking, we've got a known issue and doing something with it. So we think it's a bit of a time to change. The other thing is focusing away from syntax. I don't know about your audience, but very few of us write in a single language anymore. We're hopping around stacks and languages all the time. We're diving into old code in old versions as well as new code in in new stacks. And so focusing on just the syntax of the code we write is too late. It's every single decision we make in a piece of software contributes to its security from the color of the screen for the UX folks to, you know, the thresholds we put on decisions to the data types we choose and to when we trust inside our architectures. And that's what I do. I spend a lot of time working with engineers all around the world about 76 countries at this point, trying to bring security back to where it should have been to begin with. I want to dig into a couple of the practices that you shared. There's a couple a couple different angles. So the first one you mentioned about every role in, in a software team contributes in some way to security. I was wondering if you had any recommendations to like operationalize that mindset within your software team. Like say you're a head of engineering, you don't have a formal security role. Maybe you're running a team between 20 to 100 folks without security. What might that look like in terms of operationalizing that mindset within the team? I think one of the biggest challenges that face everyone on the team when it comes to adding something else into their idea of quality software and that thing being security is we don't have any time. So as a leader, one of the the most important and strongest signals you can send that can improve the security in your team is being the guardian of space, creating space in the workload for you to say, I need to stop for a second. I think there's an issue here. Or, hey, can we re-examine this design a little? I think there's something we need to consider for security. 
The other thing we can do is, you know, security issues um, and security things we have not yet addressed are just another form of technical debt. So while we know as leaders that it's difficult to work technical debt through and some technical debt will never be addressed, we need to be tracking it in the same way. We need to be making the same decisions of when we push forward with new design and new ideas and new features. And when we take those two weeks and we actually go, right, we're going to address something here. And I think as leaders, if we don't have that voice, if we don't make it okay to put security in that mix, it becomes very difficult for anyone below us to feel that they can have the agency to do that, the the authority to do it, and the accountability to, because it, it will feel divorced from their workload, their priorities. The other thing is we're really good, really good at telling you that you screwed up and your code is ugly um, and there's a security <laughs> problem and you should feel bad. We're really good at that. Super good. Like 15 years of practice, good. So we, I would like to challenge the leaders out there to do something a little bit different. Yes, your code is ugly, undeniably. My code is ugly too. It's fine. But let's celebrate the security stuff we do as well. If you've got a tester who, you know, they've got that natural urge to stick their fingers where they're not supposed to in your code and they find these weird bugs, celebrate it. Put that thing on a wall. Go, oh my goodness, our QA team are doing security testing and they're finding these flaws. Isn't that cool? Because holding it up and encouraging your team and showing it as a positive part of improving the quality of your software is contagious. So use that. When we only talk about the bad and the issues and the incidents, well, you end up on the pit of despair. Nothing is good after that. So yeah, be the champion for space and be the voice celebrating and encouraging uh, folks in your team to explore. It's the the inspirational side of behavior change. I love that, that idea of like celebrating the types of behavior you want to see in your organizations and that that it is true in any type of culture change that you're, you're trying to create including security is another expression of that. I think that's great. I want to go back to the elements around around syntax and the you talking about decisions, all of the decisions that you make within design, engineering, UI, UX, like impact security. I was wondering if you could talk, maybe highlight or flag an example of some of those decisions that could kind of flag like risks like of security that people could pay attention to. I think some of the areas that we've got some real scar tissue in our applications is around authentication. So yeah, I could go into SQL injection and stuff, but somebody in your audience is going to go, yes, but SQL's old and let's not do that anymore. The one thing we do share pain around (laughs) is authentication. Whether we like it or not, it's been around forever. It will be around forever. We will always need to identify a person and say, you are who you say you are. And then we also need to do authorization. You can do what I've said you can do. We have some nasty anti-patterns in how we do this. Um, I don't know if any of you like step back from the systems you built for a second and just think about the systems you use. Those authentication systems that they reward you for choosing poor passwords. I'm looking at you online streaming systems for TVs where you have to sign in in four rooms in your house. And so that 27 character password you chose is not just painful, but your nan is never going to be able to do that because, yeah, seriously, because you don't even have a keyboard. (laughs) There, There are parts of that flow that could have been detected any point before code was written. That is not a feature of code. That is a design choice that was made by product people, UX people, combined with engineers. Now, authentication is a really hard problem, super important in security, but we spend very little time in really looking at the design we've put in place to the audience that's been used. And the other side of it, as our audience changes or as our product changes, revisiting the authentication and changing it to meet the demands of the app as is now, also really rare. So if you started out, you know, and your company was selling widgets to X group of people and they were all, you know, able-bodied 20-something-year-olds from, say, the West Coast of the US, great, cool. But if your company then pivots 
and suddenly you're selling globally or selling to a wider age group or to different technologies. So, you know, not everyone in your audience now has a high-end smartphone. All of those decisions have to be revisited. Um, and so these are the kind of the practical things we can do outside of syntax. The syntax is how we build it. That's great. That's cool. We want to do a good job on that. And as engineers, we know how to find the good syntax patterns to do this. But what we don't do often is look at, should I be building this? Or how have we considered this environment properly from a security perspective before we even lay a line of code? Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I want to go into another area that you'd mentioned, the tracking and managing security as tech debt. Because one area of friction a lot of folks in our community have expressed is the justification of spending time on, you know, different elements categorized as tech debt versus new features and, and launching other elements. And so in this case, do you have a framework or approach to help somebody communicate some of that security debt investment to make to folks maybe that are out of engineering or the quote unquote business side of the company? Security debt, much like tech debt, it has a very bad reputation. I've seen extreme lines of this. So from, you know, I met a team who their tech debt just gets auto deleted after three months. If you've not dealt with it, it's not going to be dealt with. It gets deleted. That's a little bit far for me. I'm, I'm not comfortable with that, if I'm honest. I think the security debt, though, is a very special category. Now, there's a few things that we need to consider as a bit of background before we kind of talk about the strategy mm -hmm. and things. Firstly, having zero security debt is highly unusual and is a red flag. So if your organization believes it has zero security debt at all, that's cool. But much like testing can never prove the absence of bugs, you, you want to be questioning that. In fact, and it links to how we kind of incentivize and look at this debt going forward. It should never be a, we paid back our debt and now we're clean. It should be a, we put three things in this month, but we took four things off. We should be looking at velocity and a delta change. That, for me, is not just a sign of security is improving. That might well be the case, but it's not necessarily guaranteed. But it shows me that there is two healthy processes that are in action at any one point. One, looking for new opportunities to improve the security of our product. And two, remediating issues that we've identified. And by measuring the relationship between the two, as which one is growing, which one is shrinking, you can see where that focus is. Now, when you're coming to communicating that up to the business or to the wider organization, because you're not in engineering, there's a whole bunch of frameworks and tools you can use to help with this. Um, and it all depends on whether you want to measure the security of your life cycle or the security of your product. And they're two very different things to measure. So the life cycle maturity is how prepared is my software development life cycle to identify and prevent security bugs consistently throughout uh, the build process. So that means whatever I build, whether it's, you know, a car app or a pet dating app, if I'm using that flow and I'm using that process, then I am likely to identify the addresses issues before it is released. The other side is product security maturity, and that's the product I have built with the technical and architectural choices I have made throughout that process. How well equipped is it to defend against common attacks and how many of the common vulnerabilities that could exist in a system of this type using these design patterns exist within it. Now that's a lot. I'm just going to unpick this into some manageable things that your audience can do. Firstly, 
Pick one or the other. Don't try and do both at the same time. If you have dozens of products in your place because it's a really old company and it's been around ages and you've got like a COBOL stack over there and some new wave God knows what over there <laughs> and nobody really knows how much code is going on, aim for your life cycle because every single product is going to have a different maturity and different needs and a different environment in which you're going to try and fix it. So try and aim for the shared component if you have chaos many, many products of varying types. You'll get to the product stuff on a product by product basis later on, but start with your life cycle. If you're on the other hand, young company, you know, living the dream, utopia, it doesn't really happen, but let's dream. Then you might start with the product side because you're quite confident that you've only got one product to assess. You can go really, really deep on that. And then your life cycle, as you mature it, you can start looking at the security of that. So pick one or the other. There are great resources provided by OWASP. Um, both of these. So the application security verification standard is for looking at the maturity of your product. And then OWASP SAM, S-A-M-M, is for measuring the maturity of your life cycle. So you can check those out and there's free resources on how to get started. No consultants required. Fantastic recommendation. Also, the clarity of how to make a decision on which one to focus on, I think is so great in terms of where you're at with your company. I want to talk about the messy middle, though. So like for maybe a company that's a little bit more mature, like maybe has a few different products, like how would you sort through choosing one or the other if you're more of in that that messy middle phase? I love the messy middle. Once upon a time, um, I used to do consultancy for a living. I'm thankfully reformed. But uh, I used to be called Mary Poppins for some of my companies because I would come in and I would deal with chaos and I loved the messy middle. Now, the messy middle is all about people. So you're going to make a decision based on how much control you have and what the players are, the cultures and the teams that you're talking to. If you know that your life cycles are chaos and that every team is doing their own thing and there's a lot of autonomy and not a lot of guardrails, then anything to do with life cycles is going to be very challenging because every time you suggest a tool or an improvement, you're going to have to put it into several different life cycles and styles of working. And there's a whole cast of characters that you're going to need to lobby to make that work. You need to look for the bit that is the most stable in the chaos. So if it's not your life cycle, if it's not your deployment pipelines and things, that's cool. Just park that for now. You might be better choosing a single product and just working through that, not just because it gives you an achievable goal in terms of, you know, you're not trying to eat the entire thing at once, but you're going to be able to gather stories that work for the culture of your organization to share with the other teams. When it's chaos, there's a lot more going on than just security. There's often all sorts of challenges, many of which you may not even be aware of stepping into the security space but all of them will impact your ability to make change and to get that change to stick for a period of time. So by choosing one product, one project, and working through that, and also getting some people from that project to come and work alongside you. So you're not going to try and superman your way into this, like no heroes allowed. This is a team sport. You're going to get them to come in. Now, every single security thing you put into a life cycle has an impact. So what effect is it going to have on the things around it? has outcomes. So what is the good thing that's going to come out? And it has a whole bunch of unforeseen consequences. So if you take it project by project and for each initiative, you articulate what the impact, the outcomes, and you look for signs of those uh, things changing around the outside, you can have a really honest discussion with folks as you go and you can tailor your approach. If you find that the impact and the negative impact in particular outweighs the benefit, rip it out. Don't put it in there. Um, if, for example, I'll give you a really concrete example. Um, a lot of folks talk about putting um, source code scanning tools, so DAST and SAST, inside their life cycles. Great. Wonderful. What they don't talk about is how long some of those tools take to run. Now, if your CI/CD pipeline, even in the messy middle, is taking six and a half minutes to run, and you're actually kind of proud of that, and you go and try and put your software scanning tool in, and that tool takes five days to run, nobody's going to be happy. 
And so now you're talking about, oh, do I build a parallel pipeline and then have that a lot? Nothing good is happening here. And so you need to reevaluate why <laughs> I was putting that tool in in the first place. If it comes to it, could we do something else that achieves the same outcome? And that could just be giving your teams a decent checklist or a linter that has been adapted to look for common security anti-patterns. I'm just, I'm laughing because like the clarity in which you're able to talk through, like you're like, I'm a reformed consultant. I was like, you, the clarity in which you describe these different pathways and which way you can walk down. I was like, I could see you've learned a lot. You've grown a lot from that moment. And we're glad to have you back on the other side. Yeah, thank you. I have all the gray hairs to prove that I, I've survived. So the nice thing about agent experience is that sometimes it gets mistaken for wisdom. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about if you had any stories or examples of some of the highest friction areas around security behavior change or sort of the human side of, of security. Are there any areas that you found within engineering organizations that have more resistance than others? Yeah, and I'm going to not make friends with this. I'm sorry, audience. I do like you. You should like me too. But let's get into it. You know, the biggest <laughs> yeah. area of friction for me is a senior engineers, uh, myself included. Um, there's a weird bit of psychology that's at play. I'll explain it in a moment. But essentially, the older and grayer and more established in our careers we get, the more likely we are to be resistant to changing our behaviors. Or we'll believe we already know it. Or other people will believe we already know it because, well, we're old. Um, that one's the most dangerous of all when somebody thinks that you know something you've never, ever claimed to know yourself. It's really easy to get a young graduate and give them some new skills. Um, we train all of the students in New Zealand and Australia on our platform as a, an outreach thing. They are keen. You know, the start of your career, you've got the most energy you could possibly have. But the later we get, the more resistant we are and the more, in some ways, jaded. You know, we've had our run in with folks who've been telling us to do different things and not all of it has been great advice. And, you know, I, I, I respect that. But there's a weird bit of psychology here. Let me get back to that. And I can give an analogy from doctors. That's probably the easiest way to do it. So when you're a junior doctor, everyone believes you're going to be the one that makes the most mistakes because you're only just starting out. But at that point in your career, you also have the most checks and balances of anyone else. So nobody is getting a script written or, you know, a procedure assigned unless multiple other people have signed, up on, signed off on that work. The later you get in the stage of your career, the less oversight you have. And also the more other things get into your world. So you suddenly have to manage a team and suddenly it's your responsibility to deal with the vulnerabilities in third-party software or all of these other things come. That's why we have meetings in our calendars that make us wish that we had other jobs. Now, as a doctor, what they found was the number of mistakes made when it came to crucial decisions that harmed people, actually it went down. So you junior went down, 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 down until it started going up again. And you get to a certain senior level and because of the lack of oversight and because you're so busy and because you're possibly a little bit more reluctant to hear it, you're more likely to make mistakes again. And I think with us engineers, that can be the same too. When we first started hiring devs into our team, it was a bit of a harrowing experience for me. I'd been, you know, the lead developer. I created our Frankenstein's monster. And I, I considered myself A, very old and experienced and B, I've been doing this a while and there wasn't much I hadn't seen. And one day, one of my juniors, who's fresh out of college, came up to me and he said, Laura, I want to talk to you about the pull request you put in. I was like, cool, let's talk about it. And he's like, so I really love what you did here. And then he paused and you could feel the word, but that was waiting there. And he just wasn't brave enough. So I was like, well, what are you trying to tell me? And he's like, but did you know that that line there has been replaced in the latest version of Python and now you can do it in three characters? I was like, oh, and it was that moment of realization that actually, even as old and wise and gray and tired as I am, I don't have the energy 
that other folks earlier in their careers have. And so there's still always opportunity to learn. There's always opportunity to be shown a different way of doing things. So I think if I was going to give advice to those out there who, like me and and you, Patrick, have been around a little while, it's the best thing you can do for the security of your organization is being open to the idea that you're fallible, that you can make mistakes, that everyone will. And that if you live and breathe that behavior of openness to feedback, really honest feedback, it's going to not just help you, but your entire team who look up to you understand that that's a normal part of being a leader is actually showing when you skin your knee and learning from it. It's been so cool to dive into like the psychological biases that are sort of impacting folks forming their security organizations. I feel like I had such an anti-pattern associated with, you know, how do you successfully build a security organization or effort? And so this has totally disrupted my thoughts and approach here. It's been a lot of fun to dive into that. We get a lot of questions from folks in our community about tools. And right now, you know, a lot of folks are asking about security tools. Going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this is that before you even get into the world of tools, acknowledge that security is a human issue. And we just spent a lot of time deep diving into all of the different ways to assess that. So now let's assume somebody is at a position now where they've they've handled all of the psychology, the human elements, awesome. the behavior. Good work team. Man, if, if only. And now they're ready to sort of explore tools. How do you know if you're buying the right security tool? I think this is why that part about the exploring bit is so crucial first. So um, I have a rule with my juniors, um, with anyone I've ever trained or mentored, and there's been a few, where you're not allowed to give me an automated tool that does magic unless you can explain to me what it does. And now I don't mean by a line-to-line basis, nobody's got time for that. But, you know, if you're going to run a a magic thing, tell me the steps it's taking. What does the network traffic look like for this thing? What load does it put on something? I'll give you an example. There's an open source tool called SQL Map. And it is a fuzzing tool for SQL database vulnerabilities. So it can help you find SQL injection vulnerabilities. Really great tool, super free of charge, really well documented. But you put that against a production server, you're going to do a denial of service attack within two minutes. It is aggressive. It is a monster of a tool. It's incredibly powerful. It's a beautiful thing, but you can't just use it willy-nilly. When we're coming to choose our tools, firstly, understand the job you're trying to solve. So what is the problem here? What is the outcome you're trying to have? Is it I want to identify if there's been a change in configuration in my cloud hosting provider? Cool. There are tools for that. We can look at that. It's a very specific problem. I want to spot common vulnerabilities in my code in a pull request. Great. We can do that. I want to identify and make sure that no secrets are committed to a source code repository so that we don't have to unpick it all and roll them all over because that's really tedious. We can do that too. And the nice thing about doing it problem by problem is you can then work your way up the tools. So in the the, um, secret space, for example, now in the completely free world, we have Trufflehog, which is a little open source script you can run as part of your build process and it will tell you where the secrets are. Great. Wonderful. Is it pretty? No. But, you know, it does a lovely XML output. So, you know, who doesn't love XML? You can then move up the stack to looking at the things that GitHub already has built into it, which increasingly includes things like secret checkers or secret storage. Um, But because you went from the problem to a simple solution to a more complex one, you can be more discerning in the tool that you're picking up. The last thing you want to do is go to a trade floor and say, hey, I have a problem with API security. Please help me. Because what you'll end up with is a box that solves a generic category of problems, but probably doesn't solve the specific problems that you're looking to solve. So link it back to your product or your lifecycle maturity that we talked about before where you measured it. Pick one of the things you've got a gap, 
turn that into a question and choose a tool based on that. And don't be afraid of the open source tools, but be aware you might choose to replace them later with paid tools because they're easier to run or they have better interfaces or all of those things. They integrate better with your other tools, but don't jump to that bit. Understand the question first. Related to evaluating and reviewing these different tools, how should somebody evaluate or assess the value or the ROI of those tools when you're considering, I think, like in this open source to making a deeper investment into a tool perspective? How should somebody think about that? So I think ROI is, we use it a lot in security and it means nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, It's one of my least favorite statements. If you ever see a security tool that says, we've stopped 83% of our organizations being attacked, it's absolute rubbish. It's made up numbers, it's marketing. We know this, we're engineers, we're very cynical people. So instead, look at it like you would any other productivity or efficiency tool. So you have a problem, you've measured that problem, you knew that was there. You know that there's a free version that you can do, or you can do it manually, and you know how hard that is because you've done it. You can measure how many hours it takes, what the complications and the pain points were in that. Now, worst case, simplest scenario, measure your ROI on how many hours you're going to save in your month by being able to consistently do that without going through that painful cycle. A lot of the return on investment is uh, in security is about accepting, firstly, security isn't optional. It's mandatory. And at that point, it's not a should I do it, should I not? We have to do it. It's just how much pain are we going to endure while we're doing it? And then move on to the efficiency and effectiveness of those tools. So talk about your time, the number of pull requests it's saved, whatever you can measure about how this is helping you solve a mandatory problem. I love it. Uh, I think like evaluating it like a productivity tool is such a great analogy. And I think the ability to do that is very transferable. Related to this, what are ways to incorporate security monitoring like with your current tool stack? Or are there efficiencies to, to gain here versus going out and getting a completely new tool to introduce and incorporate? Yeah, also absolutely. <laughs> if there's anyone listening from Sumo Logic, I have done some truly dirty workarounds for security tooling in Sumo Logic, uh, in Datadog. So all of these really wonderful monitoring tools that we have out there for, you know, our, our code health and our system availability. Guess what? Most of that can be applied to security. So I'll give you an example. In a SQL injection attack, one of the outcomes is somebody is able to change how a SQL command is running inside your application and change it to do something else, normally to gain access to additional information. Now, as a former DB admin, one of the things that we were really, really passionate about was how quick and effective the runtime was on each query. I knew exactly which queries were painful, and I had the monitoring place to tell me when one went outside of those thresholds. If you see something tripping up a slow query log, that isn't something that you've been working on recently, that's a really good place for you to start investigating what else could be going on here. Because if that query is suddenly bringing back a lot more data than it should be and suddenly takes you know over your threshold, then that's a cue, that's a trigger. And so security doesn't have to be you know this mysterious kind of ephemeral thing. You can look for what would the symptoms be in my application. Is my application not available right now because it's under too much load? Are my queries running slower? Am I serving more traffic to regions that I don't normally serve? Am I seeing access at different or weird times times of day and night or more times per minute. If you look at common bits of our apps that are often attacked, so think your reset password, your login, there's a normal pattern in your logs already of how many times those bits of functionality will get used in a minute. The second you go outside of that, that's a trigger for not just performance scaling, but also, ah, okay, cool. What else could be causing that? What else could definitely be security? So reusing your logging tools with a different lens, really good because it's all together already. You've done that work. 
Now you're just adding some custom rules and thinking about it differently. The other side is to use what is built into your version control system. I'm hoping there's nobody listening who's still rocking SVN under a desk in a box. I think we've all moved on, thankfully. But if you're in GitHub, there are so many things to be built in now. Go turn on Dependabot. It's going to tell you when your packages are out of date. Go and look at the secret storage. Go look at some of the tools from HashiCorp. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there you're probably already using that have this built in. Um, and finally, you'll hear a lot of people talk about hacker tools, uh, things like Burp Suite and things, which is a great tool, by the way. But do you know what they are? Underneath it all, a lot of them are proxy tools. And guess what? You already use every day to test your APIs. You already use proxy tools. You're already using tools in many cases that have a better UX than security tools, just in a different way. So don't feel the need you need to go and buy something with a security label. Again, look at what you're trying to achieve. If what you need to do to test the security of something is stop a transaction midway through, tamper with a piece of data and then let it go, you probably already have the tools for that. Great insights. Laura, I know we've only got two minutes left. We have a couple rapid fire questions to close off our time together if you're ready to jump into those. Let's go for it. We can do it. All right, let's do it. What are you reading or listening to right now? Uh, oh, no, people will judge me. Okay, right. I read absolute trash. So please don't kind of look at me for inspirational <laughs> reading. I'm not that gal. I am reading some interesting books, though, in the psychology space. So The Body Keeps Score, which is really interesting. It's about how the body responds to trauma and how you heal from it. But a lot of the lessons you can get from that crossover with security and safety So and recovering from harm. So that that's uh, the reading space. Outside of that, it is all trash, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm not that sophisticated. We all need a little bit of balance, you know, to be, mm, dive into the mechanical side of what we do and to stretch the other side of the brain. So I'm, I've been deep down probably a three or four year rabbit hole of strictly science fiction reading. Oh, I have nice. not picked up anything that could be perceived as like personal development or like self-help or whatever. Anything in that category? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think my current trash reading is, you know, your typical trope of a princess who happens to be, think she's an orphan who has a sword and then turns out magic powers and goes on an adventure and kills a lot of people. The standard, you know, trash you buy in an airport. Um, and I have no shame because you know what? When you do security all day long, you're staring at what could be horrible things all day long. And if you can't find the joy, if you can't find breaks from it, that's a really fast path to a bad place. Absolutely. We spent a lot of time talking about different tools. You've provided some incredible recommendations and, and things for people to, to assess, evaluate and look into. What's been a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? I think, you know, in my space, I think the first time I really could grapple with a methodology for threat assessment was Microsoft Stride. When I saw laid bare that you could do threat assessment without buying a special cape or a $3,000 license to a big platform or whatever. And that made it much more accessible. And outside of that, most of my the frameworks and things that work for me are actually stepping outside of the technical domain entirely. So trying to see how folks in the creative industry solve problems is really good for bringing back to security. So for example, we're in the age of you know LLMs and auto-generated content. My husband's a painter and an artist. So their, their community is grappling with the resurgence of the need for marking the, the origin and the truth of art. Where did it come from? Who created it? And therefore, that relates to its value. And that is a big reminder for me that in all of this age of crazy tech that we're doing, some of those problems are going to become, well, very new again. And once upon a time, we had to solve them once before. So yeah, it, I think for me, it's looking outside of my domain uh, and seeing where things cross over. Next question. What's been a, a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? 
the importance of things being fixable, I think, is probably, for me, the one that I follow the most. I, I have a soft spot for old mechanical things because mechanical things, particularly built at the Syrian period of time, they were designed to last hundreds of years. And if you looked mm-hmm. after them, they did, and they did the job very, very well. There are things from that space and techniques that we had that we've forgotten about, that we've gotten used to things being transitory and not investing in them because we're going to throw them away at the end. So I think we'll see more of that as the world shifts. The right to repair. That's a great trend to, to point out. Last question, Laura. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Uh, yeah, but I'm going re- to really out myself as a mom by uh, saying where I got it from. So the quote and the mantra that I'm kind of embracing at the moment is be kind, but be bold. And also the title of um, the guy from Dell's book, I've completely forgotten his name now because that's my life, which is play nice, but win or aim to win. The idea being that all of the shared root of these is the world is a pretty scary place for a number of reasons right now, many of which are out of our control. And so being generous with your time and your energy and just listening and connecting with people is such an important thing to do. But at the same time, try and do amazing things. So go be bold. Go try and change the world. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And I got that from the new remake of Cinderella that I watched with my four-year-old the other week. And it's literally all the way through the movie. And my little girl was so inspired by it at the end of it that she wants to be like that. And she wants to be bold and be kind. And I think, you know, for inspiring four-year-olds, that can't be a bad thing to do. Some of the most like inspiring and enduring kernels of wisdom come from the simplicity of a child's story. So um, I could see the impact of that and the, and the power of that. A powerful way to close off our conversation, Laura. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time and be able to spend time with us and guide us through the crazy, chaotic world that security can be and to provide a little bit of order, a little bit of direction, and to to wade through the human side of things. I think going through the human biases, very, very impactful and helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.